Well, good morning. If you are tuning into this stream and you're maybe not regularly a part of our church family, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest Community Church. I'm on our staff uh, serving as our lead pastor. And I just want to welcome you and, and thank you um, for, for tuning in. I will welcome you into a, a video stream. It's kind of a funny thing to say, but that's the crazy world we're in, right? But the truth is I really am glad, especially if you're not a regular part of our church family, that you've found us here. For whatever reason uh, God has brought you here, which I believe he has, I'm, I'm glad that you're with us. And we would love to hear from you. I, I hope to actually see you uh, at some point in the future when we can gather again together physically to be able to meet you and just invite you to become part of our church family. But uh, you know, even before then, we would love to hear from you. Uh, our phones are being answered uh, all the time, 503-629-8300. You can get in touch with our pastors. We would love to hear from you. Maybe you've got um, something that's concerning you. Uh, maybe this time period of, of isolation is sort of setting in and there's something you'd just like to talk with somebody about or pray about. We are here for you. Uh, our phones are being answered. Might take us uh, a few minutes to get back in touch with you because we're all working in different locations, but we would love to respond very quickly to that. You could also get on our website at harvestcc.org. Right down at the bottom of that page, you can click and send a prayer request in if you're more comfortable doing that. Uh, we receive those uh, real time and we pray for those every request that comes in we just love to pray with you um, welcome you into our church family so i hope you'll take advantage of that and speaking of prayer i actually want to pray for all of us right now uh, whether you've never been part of our church before or like so many of us if this is your church home and you're deeply connected here or anywhere in between I want to invite you to join me as I lead us kind of together to come before the throne of God. I encourage you to just sort of mentally and emotionally get in the mindset of not just listening to me talk to God for the next couple of minutes, but joining me in your own heart and in your mind as, as we seek to connect with God and ask him to speak to us this morning. So would you pray with me? God, what a privilege to be able to pray, to come and, and, and talk to you, know that you are listening, know that you are there, know that you care, especially in a time where um, this period of isolation is getting longer, it's maybe getting more wearisome, uh, most of us are feeling it even more in very di various different ways. God, what a joy to know that you are there and that you care. I want to pray first of all this morning, Father God, for our Mother's Day celebrating and commemorating whatever that entails for us. Um, as we process the emotions of Mother's Day, whether that's elation and gratitude, um, whether it is love and joy, whether it's heartache and hardship and regret or some crazy mix of all of that, uh, a day like this can always be a complicated day. And, and this particular Mother's Day is even more complicated because we can't get together and can't connect with people in the same way that we normally would to deal with all of that. And so, Father, I'm just praying for your grace and your mercy in each one of our lives and our families today, uh, even as we process the emotions of this day. Help us to lower expectations uh, where we need to and understand that that's not all a loss. It's just what is. Help us to focus on what matters most. Help us to connect effectively with one another, to be honest about our thoughts and our feelings, whether they are joy and gratitude or sorrow and heartache. Father, I pray that you just be with all of the processing and celebrating of this day as well uh, today and just as well just encourage each one of us where we need to be met. And Father, as I think about this, this time of, of isolation, which has stretched into two months now, and we're finally starting to hear some rumblings of maybe how and when things can slowly get back to some sort of a new normal, and, and, and so many of us are really hungry for that information, I want to pray especially uh, for our government leaders this morning. 
got to pray especially for Governor Brown here in Oregon and uh, her advisors at the Oregon Health Authority and other places. God, I pray that you would give them as civic leaders of a large state with several million people and lots and lots of complicated, uh, rapidly changing information. God, would you give Governor Brown and her advisors real wisdom and understanding truly what is the best course in weighing so many sometimes competing and conflicting demands and opinions of so many of us. Father God, I pray that you'd give them the wisdom, give her the wisdom to make the right decisions at the right time. We pray for their success, for the good of everybody who lives in our state. Father God, more close to home, I, I pray for us as leaders of Harvest Community Church our ministry staff and our elder team as we are looking uh, very intensely right now based on the information at hand about what it will look like for us to get back to uh, a new normal, a normal as a church where we can meet again. God, we need your wisdom as well to know how best to care for one another and for people, how best to communicate who um, we're going to be and where we're going to be going and when and why. God, I pray for our members as well, even in that process, as we're hungry for information that so often just having to sort of wait and deal with the reality of it. Father God, as, as your people, especially the members of this church, um, I pray that, that we would reflect you even in this tough time of waiting and wanting to know in how we even respond to that difficulty. God, even I, I think this morning of our, our social media presence, uh, social media is such a crazy tool, such an emblem of our modern day life. So much good that can come out of it, but it seems designed to be a platform to, uh, for us to express ourselves. And Father God, I know that the last thing the world probably needs is a whole lot more of me expressing myself right now and my own personal opinions. It's throwing that out there is probably not going to make the world much of a better place. But God, I pray that you would lead us as members of Harvest Community Church to truly and authentically express you, even in our digital presence and our social presence at this time. Because to express you, Jesus, to express your love, your sovereignty, your rulership over every area of life, your grace and your sacrifice to pay for our sins, boy, that can change the world. That can make the world a better place. So I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters who make up this beautiful church. God, help us in this hard time to truly live for you, to be filled by and led by your spirit, and to express not ourselves, but you. Knowing, God, you will bring us through this time. Whatever bringing us through this time looks like, you will bring us through, and your kingdom will continue to expand. I pray that your kingdom, you would build that kingdom here in and through our local church. For our good and your glory, God, I ask that you would um, bless us now as we, we turn our attention to the Bible. I pray that you would speak to us, Spirit, that you would fill us, that you would control my words, and that it would not be me speaking, but you, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have us hear, and hearts to respond in faith and in love to who you've called us to be. God, we ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Well, I mentioned just a moment ago that we are well into this long time period. I went back and counted. Um, we are now on Sunday number eight of not gathering together physically as a church. I almost wish I hadn't counted because I thought it might have been six or maybe seven. It's actually number eight. It's been a long time. Uh, it's been two months. And I, I really do when I wish I could sit down with each one of you here at this table and just kind of say, how are you doing? How, how are you not only holding up during this time? Um, but another question I've been thinking about a lot myself, and I'd like to ask you too, is, is are, you, are you discovering anything about yourself in this season? 
that maybe you're not thrilled about. I certainly have uh, in my own life. It's kind of interesting how prolonged, stressful times can often reveal um, deep sort of flaws in our character, deep-seated sins that are down, lying down deep within us, but maybe sometimes we don't normally see them, or we just see them a little bit and we don't realize how deep they run because life is just moving and things are normal, and then suddenly, when life isn't normal anymore, sometimes those sins get revealed. You know, like if you... For instance, if you struggle with loneliness in life, and, and now we're in this social distancing, physical isolation thing, and so maybe you're even more lonely. Uh, where, where do you tend to go for comfort when you're alone and nobody's watching? Do you find some tendencies that may have always been there and they're even stronger now? And like you know, as a Christian man, this, this does not honor God. It's funny how the pressure can reveal those things. Or maybe sometimes our loneliness even reveals to us that, man, perhaps I'm more dependent on, on human relationships for my sense of well-being than I even want to be. That can happen. Or maybe there's maybe something totally different. Maybe it's just there's activities that you normally fill your life with, and, and now that stuff's all shut down, right? That's all been stripped away, and it's been stripped away for a while. And, and maybe we could discover that, that we're finding we, we really don't know what to do with ourselves. We're not, we're not comfortable just being who we are, just connecting with God and being quiet. That can be an uncomfortable bit of self-discovery. Or maybe it's just simply the not knowing. Um, that's been a tough one for, I think, everybody in, in my house. Uh, all of us have struggled with that in different ways. Just, just the not knowing. Why, why is this happening? When is this going to change? It, it can be really easy to get angry at, at decision makers, you know, for, for not moving fast enough or, or not being clear enough when, when sometimes the real truth is just I don't like the feeling that I'm not in control of what's happening around me. Maybe it really isn't ultimately about the decision makers necessarily. Maybe what I'm really experiencing is a reflection of the fact that I need to be in control. I, I kind of need to be my own sort of God and control my world. And I can't right now. And I'm not okay with that. And I don't like that I'm not okay with that. I don't know what it is for you. But, but is this hard time revealing anything in your own life. Personally, it's been interesting for me, just a little bit of, of self-disclosure here. Um, I've tried to be the best, um, you know, of course, father and husband I can be, and, and definitely the best pastor that I can be in this now two-month time when the church cannot physically gather. And um, I got to tell you, nothing has really prepared me or any other pastor I know for leading a church in a time when a church can't gather because gathering is so essential to who we are as a church in the Bible. Like I was, I was joking with the elders this past week when we had a meeting. I'm like, I, th I think I was sick the day they did the lecture in seminary on how to lead your church through a viral pandemic that shuts you down. You know, like I was sick that day and I missed that lecture. I, 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 I've, we got no guidance on how to do this. Interestingly, just one aspect of this, like even just preparing sermons, like the one we're diving into right now, um, which is something that, that normally is, is something I really enjoy, something I think God has gifted me with. It's always very hard work 
to create a good sermon. Um, but I got to tell you, these last few weeks, I've been a little surprised how difficult it has been for me to settle my heart and my mind on what I think God is telling us in whatever passage of scripture we're working with. It's sermon prep has been just even a greater struggle for me. I haven't even known why. I think I think I finally put my finger on it by God's grace, at least part of it this past week. I think a lot of it comes from a deep-seated desire I have to just make sure that, that we're leading well and, and, and teaching well and that, that what we're doing as a church is, is meeting people's needs by the grace of God when, when we're not normally here to assess what those needs are. But you know, here's the interesting thing. I, when I say it that way, of course, it's a good thing, right? I just really want to be a good pastor. I want to, I want to shepherd the flock of God in this church. And that is true. That is part of what's driving this. But what I think this has revealed for me a little bit has also been a bit of a sense that um, maybe I have a greater need to be seen to be a good leader, to, to know, know what to do, to, to know what God wants from us, than maybe I feel like I am. Because it is such an unprecedented time. I'm connected with dozens of pastors around town. We're talking with each other. We're sharing insights. We're supporting each other. I love those men. I love those relationships. I wouldn't trade them for the world. But man, like none of us have all the answers for how to do this really well. We're just doing it together. And I think maybe part of me is struggling a little bit with like, do I need to be seen to have all the answers? Am I okay not having the answers? Can I get in front of my church on a camera and tell them this very thing and be okay with that? Part of me is like, sure. And part of me is like, uh, maybe not. Hmm. Might be some heart work going on here. And the point of this, wherever, wherever you're at, hard times can really bring a lot of stuff to the surface. And I'm so grateful that God understands that. Whatever this difficult season may be bringing up in you, and whether you're willing to face it or not, be encouraged. God understands that Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because God became a man, the Bible tells us, in Jesus. And so he understands what it is like to live a difficult life in a broken world, how, how hard it is to run a long race of faithful God following because the Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Even though he didn't sin, he knows what it's like to be discouraged. He knows what it's like to be uh, tempted to quit. God loves us enough to be with us in what we're experiencing right now. And that is really good news. I hope that encourages you. God loves us enough to be with us in it. At the same time, God loves us enough to not leave us in it, but to lead us through it. And that's what we're going to start talking about this morning as we begin a new study, a new series of sermons in the New Testament book of Colossians. If I want to, what I want to do is, is actually just read the passage we're going to look at this morning, and it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and just read this with me. It's the introductory um, kind of paragraph to this book. And then I'll make a couple comments about the book of Colossians, and then we'll just sort of let this, this first paragraph speak to us and see what God has in store for us. So if you've got your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let me read this, and then we'll look at it together. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is also, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes now to behold wondrous things from your word. Speak to us. And give us ears to hear, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me introduce a little bit about what we're looking at in this book of Colossians, and then maybe um, we'll be able to see why this is such an important thing for us to see, even now in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic as a church, when we dive into this initial paragraph. Uh, first of all, just a little background. Many of us are probably familiar with the New Testament book of Colossians and its author, the Apostle Paul. Some of us may be less so. So real quick, even in this first paragraph, we encounter a couple of key players uh, by name. First are, are Paul and Timothy. Uh, Paul and Timothy, that's the Apostle Paul. They were a traveling, church-planting duo in the first century. The New Testament book of Acts records many of Paul's missionary journeys in which he took people along with him. They went to towns, they preached the gospel, they planted churches, as we say, or that has started new churches in places where people had just become Christians. And he's taking along with him Timothy, kind of his, his protege, his young trainee, his right-hand guy. And, and Paul and Timothy and the people that were with them are the ones who wrote the book of Colossians. The second person that we run into, in addition to Paul and Timothy, is a guy by the name of Epaphras, great first century Greek name, Epaphras. Uh, he was mentioned down there in verse 7. Epaphras became a Christian probably through the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul. And then he went back to a little city uh, in what's now modern-day Turkey that was called Colossae. Um, Epaphras, that may have been his hometown. We're not 100% sure of that. But anyway, he became a Christian, and he went there, not Paul, but Epaphras went there and started telling other people about Jesus. And God opened up their eyes, and they became Christians. They found salvation in Christ. And so Epaphras did what Paul had done. He gathered them together, and they created a church in this small city, first century city of Colossae. So we've got Paul and Timothy, and then we've got Epaphras, who lives in Colossae, and he's pastoring a church there. And then the last group is the Colossians themselves. That's the people for whom this New Testament book is named. These are members of the church that came into being through Epaphras' ministry. So here's what's actually going on here. The Apostle Paul had never actually been to the city of Colossae. He's writing a letter to a group of people, a group of Christians that he's never met personally. He doesn't have a personal relationship with them. Epaphras is there organizing them into a church and, and shepherding them and teaching them more about God. And they're doing a great job in many ways, but eventually some competing ideas about how to follow God started to arise in the church. Some people at church are saying, we're supposed to do this. And other people were saying, no, we're supposed to do that. And now there's a debate and people are confused. Well, what's the right answer? 
So they turn to Epaphras, their leader, and he's like, man, I don't really know. So Epaphras goes to the Apostle Paul, who's imprisoned in Rome at this point. He makes a visit and he tells Paul everything that's going on in the church in Colossae. And Paul is super encouraged by most of what he hears. He's like, oh, that's great. These Christians are growing in their faith. They're living for God. They're doing the right thing. But there's some confusion and some questions. And so he writes the book of Colossians to accomplish both of those purposes, to commend them and encourage them for their faith in Christ and how they're following him, but then also to give them clarity and insight so that they can be equipped to live for God more fully in their world. And, and at that point, that helps us really understand what we're going to encounter in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a call to participate in how God is changing lives through the gospel. That's my best shot at summarizing what this book is all about in a single sentence. Let me say that again. Colossians is a call to participate in how God is changing people's lives through the gospel. It has a simple three-part movement that's very similar to, to many New Testament books. It starts out kind of conceptual, teaching us beautiful truths about the magnificence of Jesus and the beauty of how God brings dead people to life through the gospel. That first section, uh, most of chapter one, includes one of the most intense passages in all of the Bible on the supremacy of Jesus. We'll get there in a couple of Sundays. That's Colossians chapter one, uh, verses 15 to 20. Then the book takes a turn in chapter 2 to start showing how this beautiful gospel we just talked about produces a very different way of following God than every other religion and every other worldview, even secular worldviews. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of pursuing one's purpose. So the middle of the book really contrasts Jesus with self-improvement, and it shows us what it looks like to live out the gospel. And then lastly, in its final section, the book gets intensely practical as the Apostle Paul encourages this first century church to embrace humility and embrace the authority structures that God has put around them and to live lives of service that put the gospel on the display so that they can participate in how God is changing lives through the gospel. Bottom line, God is bringing life and hope and purpose in place of anxiety, pain, and hopelessness. And that matters that matters now. It matters in a viral pandemic in the 21st century. One that upends our lives and, and disrupts our future plans. You see, God's word still speaks relevant words to all situations. We may look at the book of Colossians and say, what does that have to do with living in a viral pandemic? And the answer at one level is, everything. Because a book like this is telling Christians how to live under all circumstances. And so as, as I was really praying hard over the last couple of weeks and saying, God, is, is a book like Colossians what we should study now? Or do we need to hear something else from your word? And, and we spent a couple of weeks in Hebrews talking about how to run our race faithfully. And, and that was a good couple of Sundays together. But I've just felt an increasing conviction that no, we need to hear from God's word. And our current pandemic doesn't change our need to hear this. In fact, if anything, the current situation we're in may change us. It may change us. If, if you're feeling extra weary, if, if, if the difficulty of this pandemic is settling in, it might give us ears to be more attuned 
to how God is telling us to live. And the message he's giving us may be the same as ever, and we may need it just as much, but, but maybe we're even more ready to hear it now because we're more desperately in need of God's Spirit filling us. That's certainly my prayer for myself and for us as we dive in. So, so let's briefly walk through this first paragraph, which is really all about what a great job the Colossian Christians were doing. Paul says, I'm thankful to God for you guys. You guys are awesome. You're doing really, really well. So it's positive. It's encouraging. It's upbeat. Although it, it leads me to ask the question, um, as you read this, like, do you identify with that? Do you consider your, we might put it this way, do you consider yourself like a super Christian? It's a funny kind of question, right? No, most of us would say. Um, it's actually funny. I, I had already planned in my sermon prep to, based on what's in this text, to, to ask that question. You know, do you feel like you're a super Christian? And then even after I had made that plan, I watched our last Harvest Midweek Live discussion that, that Jordan had uh, with Leslie Farmer and with Debbie Chris. And at one point, Debbie said something about how like, oh man, I so can't be a super Christian. I'm like, wow, she's been reading my notes. So Debbie, this is your sermon, personally. No, I'm kidding. It's not. Um, <laughs> this is for all of us. But actually, Actually, I, like we can all relate to that, right? Like a most, I, I've never met a Christian that would say, yep, I'm a super Christian. I've got it figured out. Um, that's not how most of us feel. We might have a vague idea that someone else out there somewhere is a super Christian. Maybe the pastor of my church, although most of you probably know me well enough to not be confused on that point. You know, I don't know, maybe like Billy Graham was a super Christian or maybe some of these big authors you read like Tim Keller or John Piper, maybe they're super Christians. I don't know, but not. Not me, not me. Look, we're very much aware of our own inadequacies and the weight of our own sin and our own failure to measure up to what God has for us. And so if, if the Apostle Paul were writing a letter, you know, that was reflecting on us, I'm like, I'm not sure he would begin it with that encouragement that you are doing so well. But when I say, you know, I'm not a super Christian and I, I'm, I'm even uncomfortable with the question, I think it tends to reveal an assumption. And the assumption is that being a super Christian is a matter of what's inside me. You don't even ask that question. Like, like if the Apostle Paul would write a letter to you, would it, you know, would it be a commendable thing? Um, do you consider yourself a super Christian to be a little bit more silly about it? We often, it's like an uncomfortable question because it makes us feel like we're talking about ourselves, right? As if to say yes is to say, I'm a great person. If I am a super Christian, if I am living a commendable Christian life, that's because of me. Like I'm just more, I'm more knowledgeable than the average person. I just know more of the Bible, so therefore I'm a super Christian. Or I'm, I'm just a more spiritual person than a lot of people are. I'm just wired that way. Or, or I'm a more disciplined person or whatever the thing is. Whatever it is that's made me a commendable Christian, it's something that comes from within me. And so then we get uncomfortable talking about it. But I got, man, I got to tell you, if we do believe that living a commendable Christian life is come, is, is, it comes from within us, that will wear us out. <laughs> That'll wear you out fast, and it'll wear you out hard. Maybe now, even more than normal in this wearisome period of isolation, you're just, you're burnt out with how isolation has brought your sins to the surface. Maybe you're weary with the struggle of just the wondering and the not knowing, and you feel anything but a super Christian. It's like, man, I, I've got so little to bring to the table. But you know what, here's, here's, here's the interesting thing. 
this passage actually shows us how we can be, I'll go ahead and say it, how you can be a super Christian, right? I actually kind of half-jokingly titled the sermon this morning, How to Be a Super Christian, knowing that none of us think we are, and many of us don't even think we should want to be because we think that says some things about ourselves. But here's the point that I think the Bible's trying to get at here. To be a successful Christian, a commendable Christian, has nothing to do with me. In fact, it doesn't come from within me. The, the, the energy and the resources to live a commendable Christian life don't come from within me at all. And we see that in the way that, that the Apostle Paul commends the Colossian Christians for how they're living their Christian faith. And he's super clear it has nothing to do with them. It actually has everything to do with Jesus. The way to become a super Christian is to soak ourselves in the gospel. There it is. I just gave away the secret. I, I should have written a book and made millions of dollars. And cat's out of the bag, right? Um, the, the, the way to be a, a, a commendable, successful Christian is to soak ourselves in the gospel. That's what this paragraph says. Now, this paragraph is really, really kind of dense, uh, which is typical for the Apostle Paul. If you're used to reading his New Testament letters, he packs a lot of ideas into a very few words and he winds them all really, really tightly. And so I spent several hours this week kind of trying to unwind the whole thing and follow every word and preposition and how it connects to try to get my sense of like, what is the flow of thought that's going on here? And in the few minutes that we have here, I thought maybe the best way to just picture what I think this first paragraph is getting at, Colossians 1 verses 3 through 8, um, is to show it in the image um, of a, a sort of a cross-shaped, almost like a hopscotch sort of thing. You remember hopscotch from being a kid? I don't think I've done, I don't even know what you call them. Is it a course? Is it a I don't even know what it's called. But anyway, a hopscotch drawing thing. Um, I haven't done that since I was probably, you know, first grade. I don't know, out on the elementary school playground. But, but it's actually a useful way to sort of map out, I think, kind of the flow of thought. Like, what's the message of this, this paragraph that we just read? What is the Bible saying? The reason I say it's sort of like a hopscotch is it, it kind of starts in this place of verse 3 with the Apostle Paul saying on behalf of Timothy and those with him, we are so thankful for you every time we pray. We are super encouraged by you. And then he moves on to say why he's encouraged and he gives them two things. So that's like the first foot's down, we're encouraged. And then he takes one more hop and there's two feet down. We're encouraged for these two reasons. And then he goes back to one foot. Because he says the two reasons, the two things about you that encourage us come from one reality. And then there's one final jump. That reality comes from the core of what Christ has done for us. And so this paragraph actually kind of contains a beautiful picture for how the gospel gives us a hope that can change our lives and bless other people. Except it lists it in reverse order from the blessing, the experience of the person, for why I'm encouraged, to where that encouragement comes from, to the beauty of the gospel. So that's where this goes. Let's just briefly look at a few things and, and, and take some note along the way of what's being said here. And then kind of wrap this up and see where this, where this brings us kind of home today. First of all, we begin with the thankfulness, uh, right there in verse 3. We, referring to Paul, referring to himself and Timothy, um, as well as others that may have been traveling with them at this point, uh, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, now just stop right there. 
Do you see there's, there's a personal connection, there's an experiential and, and emotional side to what's being expressed here. The Apostle Paul has known that there's a church in Colossae. He's never been there, but he knows about them, and so he's praying for them. At this point, he's kind of in prison in Rome anyway. Where's he going to go? He's got lots of time to pray. So he's, he's praying for, for churches all over the place. He's praying for the spread of the gospel, so he prays for this church. But, but for the Apostle Paul, this wasn't just like a, a rote mechanical prayer list, right? Oh, church in Colossae. Got to check that box off. God, I pray for the church in Colossae. Um, Help him be successful. Amen. You know, move on to the other thing. Like he's saying, oh, we are so thankful to God every time we pray for you. The reminder to pray for them led him to be grateful and appreciative. They were encouraged by how the Colossian church was living out their faith, which is, which is extra interesting to me because of the fact that the Apostle Paul didn't know these people personally. Many other New Testament letters were also written by the Apostle Paul to churches, and they um, are, are churches that he had been to. Some of them are churches he had started, and he knew the people personally, and all of that comes out in the letter. Here, he doesn't know these people personally. He's not encouraged by his personal relationship with them because he doesn't have one. But nevertheless, he is powerfully encouraged as a follower of Jesus because of how other brothers and sisters in Christ that he doesn't even know are living out their faith. That's the power of living out the faith that Christ has given us and the impact that has on other Christians. So how could they be, how could they be encouraged? Or, or, or what were they encouraged about when they were praying for the Colossian Christians? Well, that moves into the, the next two steps. He lists two things in verse 4 that he is so encouraged about when he thinks about and prays for them. The first, he says, is we're uh, give Thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a couple different ways that could be understood. Um, sometimes when the Bible speaks about people having faith in Christ Jesus, it just means you've trusted Christ for salvation. It's just another way of saying you're a Christian. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not using the word faith in the sense of just saying, I'm super encouraged because I've heard there's some Christians in Colossae and I think that's great. That's not what he's saying. It's not just the simple fact that they were Christians that encourages him. He's saying something much more real time. He's saying something about the way they're living their Christian life. And that becomes clear in just the way the, the, the words and the phrases that are used. Their faith in Christ Jesus. He says, you, you guys are living a life where you're putting your faith, or another word for that is, is trust in Christ Jesus. In other words, you're banking everything in your life on Christ Jesus. You see, the truth is everybody, religious or not, Christian or not, doesn't matter. Everybody's banking their life on something or some set of some things. It, it forms sort of like the anchor for our soul. And you know what you're really building your life on, what you're really anchoring your soul in, because whatever that thing is, if you lose it, your, your life just completely goes to pieces. Like you just can't even function. You can't imagine going on with life if you lose this thing. Now, if you lose something else in your life of value, but it's not really the anchor of your soul, it can hurt. It can hurt really bad. 
but, but you know, you don't fundamentally fall apart. You can still find a way to keep going on. But when you lose the one thing you trust the most, your life completely goes to pieces. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you build your life on money, you'll be scared every time the market takes a huge dive. If you build your life on looks, you'll be scared by what you see in the mirror. You'll be scared by age, right? Whatever you build your life on, God says, this is according to Keller, if it's not me, it's fragile. It's a good word. That's the idea that the Apostle Paul is going for here. He says, you guys aren't, you're not putting all your hope and building your life on, on social acceptance or financial riches or your wealth or your jobs anymore, stuff that you could lose. You're actually anchoring your experience, your life in Jesus. What are you anchoring your life in right now, if you're honest? Like, what's the one thing that if that went away, you just couldn't even imagine going on? The Colossians lived lives that were anchored in the love that Jesus had for them. So that when their money or their success or their reputation or their relationships were threatened, they could keep going because Jesus mattered more and Jesus' love wasn't going anywhere. And, and that experiential reality leads to what we might call a super Christian life. They lived exemplary Christian lives. Because they were anchoring in Jesus, that leads right to the next thing that he identifies in verse 4. He says, we're thankful since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Stop right there. The, the love that they had for all the saints, for Christians everywhere, Christians they knew and Christians that they didn't know, they had love for them. The word that the Bible uses here, there's several different words that the Bible uses for love. This one uh, is the word agape. It's, it's the, a very common biblical word. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's not so much about sentimentality and feelings, although it can entail feelings, but it's really more about a commitment, a, a dogged commitment to, to give and sacrifice whatever I need to for the good of the one that I love. I love you so much, it's a delight for me to go without so that you can go with. That's agape love. It's a serving love. It's a sacrificing love that's oriented toward the good of the other person. You see, because they didn't build their lives on money and stuff, and they didn't build their lives on having their personal me time, they were free to part with their money or part with their time when it helped other people. It made them loving people. In other words, they were like, they were hospitable people. They were hospitable people, and that's what other people experienced when they ran into the members of this church. Right? If, if you hung out with some of these Colossian Christians, if you'd lived back in that time period, um, you wouldn't so much experience them as people who kind of were like this, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I, we're okay, we can do some business, but you know, just don't get too close. Don't get too much into my space. I, I can throw a little something out at you if you need it, but, but this is my, kind of my stuff. Don't, don't get too close. You, you didn't experience them like this. You experience them to be people who are like this. They were like, hey, how can I help? How can I love? You're a fellow Christian. I don't even know you. We've heard that, that there's a famine in another city. We're going to just raise money and we're going to give money to, to Christians in another church that we don't even know because we love them and care about them, their brothers and sisters in Christ. People experience them not like this, but like this. What kind of people do you like hanging around the most? 
We've probably all known people who are a little more like this, right? <laughs> maybe they're outright rude, or maybe even they're polite and they're respectful, but it's like, yeah, 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 don't get too close. And then maybe you know people that are just like this. They're always um, reaching out, and, and I don't just mean people who are like socially extroverted. I mean people who just, they, they care, they have empathy, they really care about you, and they'll give, and they'll love, and they'll serve, and it's like, man, we're just drawn to those people like magnets. That's the kind of people I want to be around. You know, truth be told, that's the kind of person I want to be. I don't want, to, I don't want people to experience me as like this. I want people to experience me as this. So how do people experience you? Is, is, it, is it love? Is it this? Or is it kind of like, yeah, not, not, not too close. I've, I've been wrestling with that, Christian, uh, that question a lot lately as, as I've read the book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. I've just been reading through that book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's all about how to open up our lives to people uh, and, and, and love them and welcome them into our homes and into our spaces. And more than anything, I think what I'm loving about the book and where it's challenging me is just the way that Rosaria and her husband think about people and they structure their whole life around being available to people. And that convicts me because I only have parts of my life available to people and other parts are like this, you know. It's a good question to ask. How do people experience me? Well, the Apostle Paul was so encouraged because he saw them faith in Christ. They were anchored in Jesus, and that led them to be loving, giving, sacrificial people. But it's interesting, he says there's one reason that both of those things are true of you. And so we jump now to the next single box. In verse 5, he says, this uh, faith you have in Jesus and this love you have for all the saints is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now that's really significant. That's really significant. He says, you are excited, be, uh, you, you are living effectively, I'm excited because of how you're living because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's why you're anchored in Christ and you are loving, giving people. They were so sure that they would be in heaven for all eternity that it actually affected and shaped the way they lived their present lives. That's what the Bible's saying here. I think for a lot of us as Christians, we, we have no trouble believing that when we die, we will go to heaven. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, and I've embraced him to forgive my sins. I believe he's forgiven me. I believe I'll go to heaven when I die. We don't have trouble with that idea in our heads. But many Christians experience that as such a sort of like far off and otherworldly sort of thing that it just, it, it's sort of a cold fact. I mean, it's there and it's true and I completely believe it, but it doesn't do anything for me right now. Like, I don't know what that's going to be like or it's just so otherworldly. I just, I can't relate to it. So that'll be great someday. I take that by faith. But for now, here I am just trying to live my life for Jesus. This picture that we're getting here is, is that, that the idea of, of the, the hope that's laid up for us in heaven actually impacts our values and the way we live our lives right now. Maybe it's akin to uh, anticipating a big vacation, you know. Hey, this next summer we're going on some cruise we've been looking forward to for a couple of years and or we're going to some place. And so maybe you even say like, hey, can we like trim down our food budget and save some more money so that we can have a nicer vacation, right? I mean, even the anticipation of that affects the future, affects your present as you reorient yourself toward that hope. That's, 
that's a little bit of, of what I think is going on here. The Colossian Christians were so sure that heaven was in their future that they anchored their souls in that, like experientially every day. And that meant they, they needed things like financial security and relational acceptance less because they had what they needed, the promise of heaven. And so they were more willing to part with their money. They were more willing to let go of social acceptance or comfort or security or control or whatever else following Jesus meant for them. And guys, here's the point I want to make. This is such good news. Just before we move on to the last point, let, let's point this out. This is such good news because it's so easy to take those couple questions I just asked us uh, a few moments ago. Like, like, what is your life anchored in? And, and, and do people experience you like this or do they experience you like this? And it's very easy for us as Christians, if we're honest, to say, yeah, my answers to those questions are not where they should be. Um, like, I fall short. There again, we go, like, I'm not the super Christian. Like, I'm so weary of trying. I know, and I maybe feel like I'll never make it. I just kind of don't have what it takes. And, and we can immediately sort of feel the weight of failure. Some people run into really dark emotional places with that, where it's like just this pit of, of self-condemnation and shame, and I'm such a bad person. And, you know, others that may not even have that same emotional reaction, still there's this idea of like, you know, if I just, I've got a long way to go before I could ever do that. I need to learn so much more about the Bible. I need to work harder on my disciplines. But, you know, either way, we're making this fundamental assumption that the Bible is, is challenging here. And this assumption is, for me to be a commendable super Christian, I have to be good enough. If I'm going to live my Christian life for Jesus the way he really wants me to, that's on me. Well, this is the great news. To be a super Christian, all you need is to anchor your life in the hope that Christ has brought you for heaven. That's what he's saying. The hope of heaven leads you to anchor your life in Jesus and be a loving and giving people. That's something that's attainable to a Christian who just became a Christian yesterday the hope of heaven. In order to do that, I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a hope to anchor myself in. So how can I know that? Well, that leads us to the last step along this path. Paul's encouraged because of their faith and their giving love, which is because they have hope of heaven. And why do they have hope of heaven? Because of the gospel of Jesus. Because of the gospel of Jesus. He says at the uh, middle of verse 5, He says, of this, that is the hope of heaven, you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it's bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. It's also bearing fruit and increasing among you since the day you heard it and understood it as you learned it from Epaphras. When you heard the good news that God became a man, Jesus, in order to live the righteous life for us that we could never live and to die the sinner's death for us in our place that we should have died, but now we don't have to, there's now good news. Christ has earned my salvation and paid for my debt for me, and I can now be free to do what I could never do on my own, and that is have my sins forgiven and be reunited with God. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing here is what that means is that you have access to God the Father. 
you have a, a sure and certain welcome into God's house and seat at God's table forever. You belong. You're part of his family. You will be welcomed as a precious child, not rejected as a rebellious sinner. That's incredible hope. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Friends, if you want to anchor your life in that truth, it starts with embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and King and repenting of your sins. Have you ever done that? Prayed out loud to Jesus with other people and said, God, I admit I am a sinner and I admit I can't fix my own sin. Jesus, I, I accept the fact that you paid for my sin when you died on the cross. Receive me, forgive my sins and receive me as a son, as a daughter. If you'd love to talk to somebody about what that means or how that works, please give us a call or send us an email here at the church. We would love to talk with you about that this week. Anchoring your life in this truth starts with repenting of sin and embracing Christ as our Savior. But it also continues. Even as we're um, well into our Christian life, it continues to be a need to anchor our lives deeply in the gospel. It continues when we identify the sin that, that leads us to anchor our lives in lesser things instead of the gospel. You see, as we said a moment ago, there's this, there's this intended um, impact that the gospel has, that the Bible has laid out in this passage. You believe the gospel, you get the hope of heaven, and that affects how you live. It affects where you put your hope, and it makes you a more generous, loving, giving person. But if, if we're honest... I have to say this is true in my life. There's many times as a Christian I say, well, I do believe the gospel. I have no doubt that I have hope for heaven, but I am not seeing it have the impact that's being described here. It's not making me love this world less and love Jesus more. It's not making me love people more. It's like somewhere along the line it got short-circuited and, and, and the life-changing power of the gospel like hit a brick wall somewhere. And it's just not working itself out in my life. What's going on there? Well, you know, what's often going on there is exactly that. The gospel is hitting a brick wall in our lives because we're still allowing sin and other things in our lives to, to lead us to still hope in this world rather than hope in the truth about Christ that we already believe. And so to anchor my soul in that truth means I got to figure out what in my life is preventing me from doing that. And I got to do some business with Christ. And just real quick, how this has looked for me lately uh, this may look different for you, but I hope to encourage you, if you're a Christian, to really to spend time with Jesus and do some of that. Let him do some of that heart work. Uh, for me, I, I've done a lot of, of just long prayer walks lately. And, and here's why. I've, I've learned that I can have some success when I sit still and pray. Sometimes I get up in the morning and sit on my couch, or when I'm driving around town, sometimes I'm praying and I have pretty good prayer times, but other times I sit still and I'm like starting to pray and I've just lost my train of thought, right? I've just learned about myself. This may not be true for everybody, but I've learned about myself over the years that my mind functions much better and I can sustain thinking much longer when I'm physically moving. I get up and I go for a hike or I go for a walk. Oh man, I can pray nonstop for 45, 50 minutes, sometimes an hour without losing my train of thought. I don't know why, that's just the way it works. So I've learned like if I really wanna do deep heart work with Jesus, I'd probably better put my shoes on and go walking. So as the weather has been improving, um, sometimes lunch breaks here at the church or even at home on the weekends, like I've been just taking off and going on a nice long walk and just praying. I usually start with whatever the situation is. 
God, there's a, a need I have or an upcoming conversation I need to have with somebody that I'm a little worried about or some other kind of situation that, that I'm fearful for. It's stressing me out. So I start to pray for things, you know, that are going on in my life. But when I really want to do heart work, I, I also say, God, having prayed for those things, I, I want to identify what my reaction to those things, what I'm really feeling right now. Right now, God, am I, am I angry at this person that I need to have a conversation with? So I've already prayed about the person or the conversation, but I need to pray about me. Am I angry or am I fearful about this situation? It's one thing to pray for a situation. It's another thing to say, so God, now that I've prayed for that, let me deal with the fear. God, I am fearful. Can I bring that to you and deal with that? Uh, am I defensive? Am I worried? Am I vindictive? I mean, whatever it is. Spending time asking Jesus to help me identify what I'm experiencing and feeling right now in response to my circumstances and talking to him about those things as well was a huge part of really doing heart work. The Bible says to cast your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. And sometimes I just cast the situations, but what about the anxiety itself? And sometimes if I don't even know what I'm feeling, the prayer is just, Lord, help me clear out my thoughts. Help me be honest with myself. Show me what I'm really feeling. But you know, there's one more thing. There's one more thing. When I'm really ready to start doing deep heart work, it's not just about praying for circumstances and identifying what I'm feeling at the moment. A lot of times, I have to go deeper and say, okay, what anchor of my soul is that reaction showing? Right? In other words, like, here's a situation, I pray about that, and I'm really fearful, okay, so I pray about the fear, but then I have to ask myself, is that fear showing that maybe I have an idol of comfort and security that I'm not willing to admit? Because I'm freaking out because I think I'm going to lose it. Is that showing me <laughs> that maybe I've put my anchor down in something other than Jesus, and I need comfort and security, and that's why fear is driving me? Ooh, that's a deeper question. <laughs> Some of those prayer walks get really long. And sometimes I'll pray for a while and then mm, just be quiet and walk and pray. And I'm for in 10 minutes sometimes I'm just not saying anything, but I'm just having this all out in my head and in my heart with Jesus in his presence. Is my fear of my financial situation possibly revealing a sinful love of money? Is my anger at not getting my way revealing an arrogance that believes I know better than everybody else? Is my fear of conf confrontation perhaps revealing um, an, an, an idol of, of, of comfort and ease? I just want things to be pleasant all the time. Is my, is my resentment towards someone else's success revealing a deep-seated need to be well thought of? These are the, the deep heart work kinds of prayers that I'll sometimes get into with the Lord, and I've been doing that lately. It could be hard work, but you see, when, when the gospel penetrates down to that level, God can do his work like a surgeon's knife cutting to remove a tumor and get it out of the way so that I can then lift my anchors, my soul's anchor out of that lesser thing, put it back into Christ. And now suddenly I'm much more excited about who I am in Christ and I can give and serve and love much more easily. Friends, we've got to wrap this up.
So let me just make one more final comment. All of this is done in prayer because God is in all of it. God is in all of it. I deliberately skipped over an important couple of phrases right at the beginning, and I want to end by going back to them now. Even in chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul identifies himself as an apostle um, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's all he says about himself. I am who I am by the will of God. There's only one reason Paul's a Christian. There's only one reason he is starting churches and living his life. It's because of God's choice. The sovereign control of our loving king is just shot through this entire book of Colossians. And then in, notice in verse 3, he says, we always thank God when we pray for you because you guys are doing an awesome job. Now that's kind of a funny thing to say, isn't it? Like really, think about that for a second. Hey, you guys are doing such a good job. Man, thank you for being such great Christians. That really encourages me. That would be kind of a normal thing to say, right? That's not what he says. He's like, man, you guys are doing an awesome job living as a Christian life. I'm so encouraged by that. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. He, he gives God the credit for how these people are living their lives. And by now, we know the reason why. Because being a super Christian isn't resources that they pulled from within themselves to live for God. It's what God has done for them and what God is doing in them. The only question is, will they drop the anchor of their souls in the beauty of the gospel? And the gospel is good news about what Jesus did, not what we do, what Jesus brings to our lives, not what we bring to him. We bring these things to God so that it's not us trying to be super Christians. I go on those deep prayer walks so that it's not me just trying to be more disciplined and more wise and, and, and more of a biblical scholar in order to make myself a better Christian. We bring these things to him so that he can do the deep heart work that only he can do in us which then frees us to live more for him. And the beauty is he gets all the credit when it happens. That's what's happening in the church in Colossians. And brothers and sisters, I dare say it's my prayer and hope and a desperate need in our community to see happen in churches right now in Hillsborough. That's what they need to see happen in our church. People whose lives are anchored, not in coronavirus and isolation and economic insecurity. These things are all real. We struggle with them, but do we struggle with them from a basis of being rooted in the hope laid up for us in heaven and expressed in a loving care for people because of who Christ is and what he's done? May that be true of us. Father God, I pray that you would glorify yourself in us by leading us to anchor ourselves deeply in who you are and what you've done for us that our lives would be changed, that you would get all the glory. For our good and your glory, God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.